Hi. So this is going to kind of be an update video slash podcast episode, depending on where you're consuming this, from another video or podcast episode that I did about like six or seven months ago called The Allegations Against Danny Masterson and Why Ashton Kutcher Also Sucks. And that was obviously primarily about the allegations against Danny Masterson. At the time, we were between the two trials that involved the charges against Danny Masterson. The first trial came at like the end of 2022, but it ended in a hung jury, so it was a mistrial. And then it was retried and tried in like May of this year. And so within this like last week, that first video that I made has started to get a lot more attention. And the video didn't get a whole lot of attention at the time because I only had like 300 something subscribers and I still don't have very many subscribers, but I have more. But I think the real reason that it's doing better currently is because Danny Masterson was very recently sentenced to 30 years to life. And then there were some other celebrity scandals that have surrounded it. And especially because my video did kind of deal with Ashton Kutcher and some of the shady stuff around him, it's been doing better in the algorithm now than it was even like just two weeks ago. And that is nice in a lot of ways. I'm pretty sure that I stand by a majority of what I said in that video. And I say pretty sure because I have not rewatched it and it was like six or seven months ago. So I don't remember exactly what I said. And like I said, I only had 300 something subscribers at the time. And at this point, I've been making podcast episodes for like a little over a year. I've been making, like, actual videos for less than a year, I think. And, you know, with every podcast episode and every video, I'm kind of getting an increased diligence around, like, what I say and how I present certain things that I say, partially because I have a slightly larger audience now, so I do want to feel, like, more responsible about the messages that I put out. And because I often find myself talking about contentious issues, I have realized how nitpicky certain audiences can be about the things that you say. There are a lot of people who watch my videos just looking for a reason to discount every single thing that I'm saying, and so they'll find like one thing in every video that's kind of wrong or just worded a little bit weirdly, and then cling to that to be like, oh, see, you're not a reliable source at all. You don't know what you're talking about because you got this one tiny thing wrong in a three and a half hour video. So I do try to be really careful about what I say. The problem with that, though, is that I'm a human being and I am occasionally going to say stuff that's slightly wrong. Even when the information that I have isn't wrong, I just sometimes say the wrong words. For instance, even though I haven't rewatched that first video about the Danny Masterson allegations, I know that at one point I said something about three to four billion Buddhists in the US when I meant to say millions. And I know that because a few people in the comments have alerted me to that. And most of them were fine. They were just pointing out that I misspoke or got that one part wrong. But there was one comment that said, I wanted to like this more, but your research is so bad. 3.4 billion Buddhists in the US? Do you know how many people are on Earth? Reliability is important, especially when talking about such an important case. Yikes. 
And the silly thing about that is the only reason I even said the thing about the Buddhists is just to point out how small Scientology is as a religion. Because obviously Buddhism isn't a huge religion in the U.S. compared to like Christianity and Judaism or Islam. But it still does have millions of people compared to Scientology, which has maybe like a couple hundred thousand at most. So it's such an insignificant part of the video when the rest of it is about the specific allegations against Danny Masterson that to say that you can't like the video because that one thing I said is wrong when I very clearly just misspoke instead of actually thinking that there are that many Buddhists in the US. So that's really annoying. But there are some other things that I think I said in there that I should maybe just give some clarification to. Because there was another comment on the video about whether or not Steve Miller of the Steve Miller Band is a Scientologist. Because I guess I, I looked at the transcripts for the video and I did refer to him as like a known Scientologist when I really should have called him like a rumored Scientologist. But whatever, both of those things were pretty ancillary. They were not really the focus of the video and I'm pretty sure that the focus of the video, I got most everything correct, I think. I don't know. I just, I want to put it out there because it, it, it is sort of weird to have something that I put out a bit ago starting to get more traction when I don't really remember what I said and I don't, I don't want to watch it, so I'm not going to. But whatever, the main point of the video is that Danny Masterson is definitely a rapist and should go to prison for it. And the major update from that video is that a jury agreed. At the end of May, he was found guilty on two out of three counts of rape. It's important to point out that while he wasn't found guilty on one of those counts of rape, he also wasn't found not guilty. It was a hung jury on that one, so that one was technically a mistrial. It could have been retried. I think that the prosecutors don't want to retry it, and especially after they've already gone through this trial twice, I don't blame them, but from my understanding, I think the reason that that third one wasn't a guilty verdict is really just because of like the specific incident that he was being charged with and how it fell under like California law and the the statute of limitations in regards to like if there was use of force and I guess in California if you drug someone and then rape them, that's not considered use of force. I don't know. It, it all gets into, like, very specific legal stuff. So I don't know why that third count wasn't guilty, but I don't think it's because the jury didn't believe that the incident happened, and I think that that is important to point out. So he was found guilty at the end of May. He was finally actually sentenced last week. Now I've seen different outlets reporting different things about his sentencing. Some people are saying that he was sentenced 30 to life. Other people are trying to make it seem like he was sentenced 25 and a half to 30. So just to clarify, he was sentenced 30 to life, but I guess there's a such thing as like an 85% crime so that if he completes 85% of his minimum sentence, which is 30 years, then the earliest he would be considered eligible to apply for parole would be 25 and a half years. So 25 and a half is like the absolute minimum that he will be in prison. 
but he does have a life sentence. Either way, even if he gets out at the very earliest, he's gonna be in there until his 70s at least. So we love that. Finally, some amount of justice was served for this particular case. But there are a few other things that have happened that I think is worth going over, especially in regards to some of the other characters surrounding this case. First, though, I do just want to read some of the statements from Jane Doe's 1 through 3. They spoke at his sentencing, and you can find the, like, full letters online if you want to read them. I'm just going to read some excerpts from them, the parts that were, like, the most impactful to me. And so in the first video, I really only referred to the victims as Jane Doe's 1 through 5, I think, just for, like, clarity and simplicity, and also because I didn't quite know exactly how comfortable some of them were being public with their names. I knew some of their names were out there, but I didn't know, like, you know, how much they really wanted their names associated with it. But some of them have started speaking out on social media a little bit more, so I'm just going to start using their names at this point. Jane Doe 1 isn't really public at the moment, but she is going by Jen B, so that's just what I'll refer to her as. Her letter was the longest of the Jane Doe's, so I'm just going to kind of summarize most of it, but she talks about being a second-generation Scientologist, so she was born into the religion. It's really all she's ever known, or all she had known at the time of the assault and then when she actually reported it to the police. And she talks about how reporting it to the police has affected her relationship with her family, specifically her mother. Despite the fact that her mother initially supported her and wanted to see Danny held accountable, for raping her. So she said, I have a letter from my mother where she wrote to the leader of the Church of Scientology, David Miscavige, and demanded justice for me, even if it was just the Scientology version of it, a different version of justice. I sometimes read what she wrote back then while I was still in the good graces of Scientology, back when I mattered. She loved me, I think. She seemed to care what happened to her daughter. I read it sometimes on Mother's Day, or times just to remember how it felt to have a mom. Then she talks about actually reporting it to the police, and she said, I reported my rape to the LAPD in June of 2004, but before that, there was a meeting I was to attend with my rapist. As Danny demanded in April 04, I was forced by Scientology executive Kirsten Catano to sit across from him in a meeting at a conference table where he claimed he would apologize and make a promise to never repeat such a crime on any woman if he could just hear me describe in detail how awful and violent the assault had been for me. I naively believed in the possibility of redemption, and I agreed to speak about the whole ordeal. However, it soon became clear this wasn't real. The defendant, along with his friend Luke Watson, turned the meeting into a mockery. They laughed and treated the situation as a big joke, showing no genuine remorse with no intention to change. It was heartbreaking. The realization that the defendant's callousness and lack of empathy in everything I said made no difference. What makes this situation even more distressing is the defendant's refusal to acknowledge the gravity of his actions, not just to me, but to so many. He's not shown an ounce of remorse for the pain he caused me. Instead, he chose to laugh at my suffering and the horrors I told him about. 
To compound matters, he utilized our shared faith, our community, our religion, to cover up his crime and silence me. It's deeply troubling that an institution of faith, which should stand for justice and compassion, was manipulated to shield a perpetrator from accountability. The second time he laughed at me in that final meeting, as I was describing reaching towards the nightstand, I still remember him laughing and saying he was afraid I might knock over the lamp on his nightstand, and he loved that lamp. She also talked about listening to Nisha Trout's testimony. Nisha was Jane Doe, too. And she said that she felt guilty because she knew that Nisha's assault happened after hers, and she wished that she had reported the incident to police sooner, which is really just, like, heartbreaking to hear. Not only because she shouldn't have to carry that guilt in any case, because, you know, Danny is the one that was assaulting people, so it's not really her fault what he did after that, but she did report the rape in 2004, and the LAPD didn't even press charges until 2020, so her reporting it sooner really probably wouldn't have done anything. If we can extend the culpability of Danny's crimes to anyone other than just Danny, then we can extend it to, like, the Church of Scientology and the LAPD and any of his friends who knew about the assaults and covered them up for decades. One of those friends likely being Ashton Kutcher. I don't know exactly what he knew, but he probably knew at least something. And he is referenced in Gen B's statements here as Danny's co-star. So she said, I knew he belonged behind bars for the safety of all women should they come in contact with him in an isolated setting, isolated from those who could protect them from him, isolated from those who now so easily claim they never saw that kind of behavior of the defendant. Of course, there are many cowards who can claim they just never saw him rape anyone. Yeah, that's generally not how sexual assault or how rape works. We know that. For those of you living under a rock who might have publicly stated before this trial they hoped he'd be found innocent, let me state this. I read that, and my own daughters could read that too. I have three daughters, but I wonder if Danny's co-star knows that Danny Masterson had my nine-year-old daughter's name put on an NDA and stated it forbid her to disclose anything to do with Danny or raping or assaulting her mother. The reason she knew about what this monster did to her mom was the monster himself arranged for the son of one of his friends, one of his homies, one of my daughter's classmates to tell my daughter, to tell her, to shame her and say, mommy was a liar and Danny didn't rape her mommy. I still remember the day I picked her up from school and from the back seat my child asked, mommy, what is rape? She was nine years old. I mentioned that in my letter to IJC. In September of 2004, Danny had his attorney, Marty Singer, threaten me with what my daughter would read in the rag magazines at the grocery store lines should I back out of signing the NDA that afternoon. How do I know it was Danny who arranged for my daughter to hear about the rape? Well, Danny came to the meeting with Kirsten from Scientology, and he opened up by admitting that what he did with my kid was just taking it too far, and that the church had him put money in my daughter's name to receive Scientology counseling to help her with her emotional upset. He smiled when he explained that he bought the little boy's entire box of fundraiser candy bars in exchange for that message being delivered to my child. And about that NDA, the same man who had my nine-year-old daughter included by her full name in a rape cover-up NDA 
didn't have the nerve to use his own name. Danny used an alias, David Duncan, a true coward and heartless monster. Jen B. also talked about the PTSD she suffered. She said that she went through a period of suicidal ideation. She had panic attacks while on the stand testifying. She said that she's currently afraid of the dark. Sometimes she hides in closets and becomes so disoriented that she urinates on herself. She said that she has trouble showering now because... Part of her rape did take place in a shower. It is extremely upsetting, but she closes saying, In closing on sentencing, I just wanted to say one thing. I lost my family. Our lives were destroyed. He took lives. But there is something that I think is really telling, and I agree with him as to the sentence he should face. This is a report written by Daniel Masterson, signed, dated December 9th, 2003. In closing, after he describes what he did to me that night and complained that the condoms were becoming dry, he closed with, Rape, which I am being accused of, is a felony in the state of California and in the United States, punishable for up to a life sentence in prison. Ruth is claiming in this report, being cc'd to over a dozen people, that I have committed a felony. The defendant has been convicted by a jury of his peers. I think I agree with him that life is an appropriate sentence. Jane Doe 2, aka Nisha Trout, also talked a lot about the PTSD she suffered, and then she talked about finding out in 2016 that there were other victims. So she said, In my heart, I had no choice but to come forward. And because of already having been threatened with Scientology's strict policies against reporting members to law enforcement and deliberately being shown their extensive policies in exacting ruinous punishment on defectors who speak out against its prized members, I decided to report my rape to law enforcement anyway, with the understanding that my life could be demolished again in a new way for doing so. And like clockwork since the week I came forward to police, I have been terrorized, harassed, and had my privacy invaded daily by the cult of Scientology for almost seven years now. But I don't regret it. Being a truthful, sturdy person is its own reward. You wouldn't know. When you raped me, you stole from me. That is what rape is. A theft of the spirit. You disfigured my life. You stole some crucial pieces of my self-worth and lessened my capacity for joy. You made every part of me turn on myself. Worst of all, for so many years afterward, the rape deformed my ability to trust others and discern danger or goodness appropriately, since life was now in the prism of the hatred, shame, and fear you forced into me that night. And you were someone in my community who I peripherally knew, that my close friends vouched for. Danny is a great guy, they said. This stolen trust part is the most crippling, because now my internal gauge was broken. Whatever condition it was in before, you broke it completely. When you raped me, you stole my ability to create any sort of real stability in my life in innumerable ways for over a decade, Danny. My life became cut with an invisible tension that made no sense to anyone around me. No one and nowhere felt safe. In hurting me this way, you also hurt the people who love me, because everything is delicately connected. But you will likely never have the courage it takes to see how your actions affect other people. Your heinous attack on me snuck its way through my body and my experiences so stealthily, hijacking the life I was building diligently for myself. It is worth noting, since I know you take pride in hurting women, that you never took my integrity. Nothing and no one ever could. Hear me or don't when I say you did this to me and all your victims intentionally. 
You wanted my light. You steal women's radiance. You treated us like we were less than trash beneath you. But deep down, you coveted precisely those beautiful things in us that you could not find in yourself. This is why you tried to destroy women's lives with such ferocity and delight. There is no other reason. You do it to fill the gaping abyss within you. But your affliction isn't interesting. Slap any label on it you want. Your emptiness and cowardice will be your true legacy. I know you refuse to admit it to yourself, but I am a human being. I absolutely see you as human, Danny, just missing the compassion and innate decency. I'd never want you to be raped or attacked in any way where you're headed now. I wouldn't wish rape on my worst enemy. I close now to say I have not in any way ruined your life, nor did I put you in prison. None of the incredibly brave, strong, beautiful women you raped who testified here put you in prison. You, all by yourself, made all of the craven, abominable choices that put you squarely in this seat. It never once dawned on you that you'd be held accountable. You've glided easily through your life as a depraved criminal without consequences for so long that you thought not only the law didn't apply to you, but that karma had no eye on you either. You move in smugness and spite while the spirit of life itself watches you. You live and breathe without humility or tenderness in the gift of your life that God gave you, that God gives us all. Life is precious and fragile. Find your heart. Earn something. Read books. Listen to the brightness of nothing and get well. I forgive you. Your sickness is no longer my burden to bear. And then Chrissy Bixler, Jane Doe 3, talked about the investigation into her claims against Danny and said, There was one question I wished I had been asked that never was. One question that perhaps would make people understand. And the question I needed someone, anyone, to ask me was, why did you hide from Danny Masterson for over two hours in your roommate's bedroom the day after he came to your house party? Because there was a reason. And Mr. Masterson knows the reason. He always has. And I know the reason for why I ultimately ignored my intuition and forced myself to view what he did to me not as it actually was. Because Mr. Masterson was very charming. So charming, in fact, he convinced my roommates that perhaps what he had done to me the night before wasn't so bad. After he left, after waiting two hours while I hid, my roommates told me how sweet he is, how romantic it is that this poor guy waited for you for over two hours. Who does that? Give him a chance. Apologize to him. And so I abandoned my intuition and did just that. When he called me, I apologized to him and accepted a date. Two weeks later, I moved in with him. I entered that relationship an 18-year-old girl with very little life experience. I was extremely naive and trusting. I entered that relationship with friends, family, a career, money, and dreams. Within a very short period, I was stripped of every friend I knew, my family, my job, and the belief that my dreams could ever be realized because I trusted him. I believed when he called me stupid, untalented, embarrassing trash. It's incredibly difficult for me to talk about the trauma and abuse I've experienced in my life. I have realized through the last few years that the reason is Danny Masterson. Early on in our relationship, Mr. Masterson would ask about certain traumatic things that had happened to me. He wanted all the details. In Scientology, it's called finding a person's ruins. Mr. Masterson wanted to know anything and everything that I believed had ever ruined me. Later, once I was good and trapped, he would reenact those traumatic experiences on me. 
After reporting Mr. Masterson to law enforcement, me and my family started being fair-gamed by Scientology just as they had threatened they would back in 2002. I have been diagnosed with PTSD, general anxiety, and panic disorder. I haven't been diagnosed as agoraphobic, but I can count on two hands the amount of times I've left my home in the last few years. I have physical health issues. I throw up. I started getting blinding migraines accompanied by visual auras. I go through phases where I have such severe body pains that my nerves and parts of my body are on fire. This and so much more is the life sentence Mr. Masterson and Scientology have given me. So in the first video that I did, I mostly just focused on the allegations of Jane Doe's 1 through 4 because they were the people who testified in the first trial, even though Jane Doe 1 wasn't a part of the crimes he was being charged with. She was still testifying as like a, a past bad acts witness or a character witness or something. So her allegations were fairly public. And then I mentioned that there were some other Jane Doe's who had reportedly gone to the LAPD to make reports about Danny Masterson, but that uh, most of them we hadn't heard from super publicly yet. But there were up to like eight or nine victims in total thus far. One of them did come out and make allegations via Twitter, and that was uh, Bobette or Bobette Riles. I've never been able to find like a video of someone else saying her name, so I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce it, but I think it's Bobette or Bobette. I'm not sure. But anyway, I think I referred to her in the video as Jane Doe 5 because that just made the most sense to me in terms of the simplicity for my video, but I didn't know like what order she would come in as far as like who's reporting to the LAPD. But then in the most recent trial, we actually did get some testimony from another alleged victim of Danny's, and that was Jane Doe 5, who is actually Kathleen Jenkins. So Bobette, I believe is Jane Doe 6. And again, there were reportedly other women who went to the LAPD to make other claims, but I don't have any information about those allegations. I don't know why they weren't a part of the charges against Danny, and I don't know why those people weren't also called as witnesses. But uh, as far as I'm aware, there are other people beyond just these six. But still, six is a lot. And that's something that I do think has been a little underemphasized in all the media reports about this, because yes, Danny was found guilty on two counts of rape, but we have at least six people who have made allegations pretty publicly. So because Kathleen wasn't a part of the Jane Doe's who Danny was being charged for raping, she didn't make like a big statement when he was being sentenced, but we do at least have a statement from her on her, uh, her Instagram, I think. She said, the year 2000, 23 years ago, when I was a young, naive, bright-eyed, extremely happy girl who was just getting my feet wet in the film industry. Danny Masterson ripped my life to pieces when he drugged and forcibly raped me when he was filming in Toronto. Today he was given 30 years to life, and maybe now I and his many other victims can finally start healing. I was disappointed I could not give a victim impact statement today, but I am honored to have been given the opportunity to testify at his trial and helped convict him. And then Bobette posted recently on her uh, Facebook and her Instagram saying, 
I haven't spoken about you, Daniel Masterson, since you finally have to face all you did. But instead, I want to speak of hope and love and being grateful. And all the love and all the support from every single one of you has been overwhelming, and I am so grateful. I am forever grateful to my sisters and brother who always stood by me, every single one. I am grateful for my children who have been through so much. I'm grateful to my family for always supporting me through this. I am grateful to Judge Olmeda. I'm grateful to D.A. Mueller. I am grateful for my own attorneys who continue to seek justice for us. To all assault survivors, please do not ever give up. You are never, ever alone. And to all ex-Scientologists, we are not done yet. We stand with you. Thank you all. I haven't come across any sort of public statement from Jane Doe 4, so as far as I'm aware, that's the extent of what the Jane Doe's have said about the sentencing. But moving on to what some other people have or haven't said, the real reason that I even did that first video six or seven months ago was really because of that 90s show. So if you're completely unaware who Danny Masterson is, he played Hyde in that 70s show, and then Netflix put out this other, like, reboot sequel show, that 90s show, earlier this year, and every, like, living main cast member made a cameo appearance in the show. Everyone except for Danny Masterson. And I watched quite a bit of the show, if not the whole thing. I don't think I watched the whole thing, but I really can't remember now. But it was really, really bad. It was just not like a good show at all. But I watched it because I wanted to see how they were going to address Danny's absence. Because he was a main character. And the show was so closely connected with the first show that I was like, they have to mention it in some capacity, right? Because it'd be super weird, right, if every single main character was making an appearance on the show, but then they just never addressed what happened to Hyde. But that is kind of just what they did. They didn't address Hyde's character at all. So I was like, if you had an actor on your show who is being accused of the kinds of things that Danny is being accused of, why not put in some sort of shady remark toward him in the series? Just as a way to show the audience that, like, you don't like that guy? I don't think that that would be a super ridiculous thing for you to do. But whatever. The series didn't want to acknowledge it. I guess I can kind of get that from the sense of they didn't really want that character to be associated with the things that the actor did, so... Fine, whatever. It felt a little weird while watching it, but... I'll just move on. But then the thing that was really weird to me is the fact that all of the actors came back to do these cameo appearances. All of them were doing some sort of promo for the show, and no one was talking about the allegations whatsoever. And it's a big enough elephant in the room that there's just no real explanation for why no interviewer ever asked them about it, other than they told every interviewer that they were working with to not ask them about it. The only person who ever kind of said something was Topher Grace, and he really didn't say much. The only thing he really said is like, I didn't see that behavior from him, but I also never hung out with him, so I wouldn't know 
if this is something he's capable of doing. And like, okay, fine. There were always reports about Topher not being super close with the rest of the That 70s Show cast, so I guess I don't really expect him to speak on it. But every other cast member pretty clearly had a personal relationship with Danny. And after the allegations came out, he was still on social media talking really well of, like, Wilmer Valderrama and wishing him a happy birthday, or talking about how much he loved the actors who played Kitty and Red. So I just can't imagine if you knew that a rapist, a serial rapist, was talking super highly of you on social media and making it seem like you're really good friends with him still, why you wouldn't just come out and be like, oh no, I don't like that guy. He rapes people. And in addition to that, there is also all the fair game stuff with Scientology where like, Chrissy Bixler had two of her dogs killed. The allegations were so heinous, and there was so much evidence backing them up that, like, this is the easiest thing in the world to come out against. These weren't, like, gray area allegations of, like, Danny having suspicious age gaps in his relationships or something. This was, like, violent, violent assaults with a lot of evidence, and then a whole lot of stuff used to cover up those assaults that was also violent. So everyone's silence on this whole thing was just, like, weird. And then in January of 2023, Ashton Kutcher did an interview with, like, GQ or something where he was asked about the allegations, but he basically said, like, I'm not the judge and jury, so I can't say. Which is so stupid, because even if we assume that Ashton Kutcher had no idea what was happening while it was happening, if you have a friend that gets accused of something like that, there's just no way you don't look it up. Like, you would want to look into the allegations, right? You would want to know what specifically he was accused of, and you would want to know what evidence existed to corroborate or disprove those allegations. And if Ashton looked into this at all, he would have seen that his friend was very, very guilty. So I don't care if you're the judge or the jury, you know what happened, and you know that Danny did rape those women. So when I did my first video, that was like right after Ashton gave that interview to GQ, and it really pissed me off, so I did a little bit more research into Ashton's alleged complicity, and then also talked about some allegations about separate things that Ashton was involved in. Because one of the other things that has come out since the sentencing of Danny Masterson is the fact that about 50 people wrote letters in support of him, uh, like character letters or whatever, to be given to the court to take into account for his sentencing. So basically about 50 people wrote letters about what a nice guy Danny is in the hopes of swaying the judge to think that she should give him a less harsh sentence. It didn't work, by the way. He got the max sentence. But those 50 people included members of Danny's family, other people in the Church of Scientology, his wife, James Patterson, who did uh, The Ranch. He was like the executive producer on that show. And then Billy Baldwin, Deborah Jo Rupp, who played Kitty on that 70s show, Kurtwood Smith, who played Red, and Ashton Kutcher, 
and Mila Kunis. Now, all of these letters are online. They are all completely public. They were always going to be public, but I guess Ashton and Mila didn't realize that when they sent them because I don't know why they thought that they could just write these letters and that it wouldn't come back to bite them in the ass, but they did it, so... There's kind of been this narrative around Ashton Kutcher for a while that he's some, like, secret genius or something because he invests in a whole bunch of companies. I don't know why people think that makes him smart, but I guess they do. I think maybe it's just like a comparison thing with his character Kelso in that 70s show, who was very stupid, where people are like, oh, he's not, like, as dumb as Kelso, so he must be smart, actually. But I, I really don't think that he is, because this was like a, a dumb thing to do. And I, I don't know any explanation for why he would do it other than he, he is dumb. And so the letters kind of hit on some of the same points that Ashton already brought up in his GQ interview in 2023. So in the interview, he's talking about Danny and he says, He's like, one fucking rule. Don't do anything fucking stupid and fuck this up. Because if you fuck this up, you fuck it up for everybody. He kept the cast in line, off drugs and away from bad decisions. So that's how Ashton was already vouching for Danny publicly by being like, I knew him as a great guy who told me not to do drugs, so probably, probably didn't rape anybody. And I already thought that that was a pretty silly thing to say, but he continues on that same line of thinking in these letters, and he says, As a role model, Danny has consistently been an excellent one. I attribute not falling into the typical Hollywood life of drugs directly to Danny. Any time that we were to meet someone or interact with someone who was on drugs or did drugs, he made it clear that that wouldn't be a good person to be friends with. And for me, that was an implication that if I were to do drugs, he wouldn't want to be friends with me, which is something I would never want to risk or jeopardize. And apparently Mila Kunis felt the same way because she said... One of the most remarkable aspects of Danny's character is his unwavering commitment to discouraging the use of drugs. His influence on me in this regard has been invaluable. In an industry where the pressures and temptations of substance use can be overwhelming, Danny played a pivotal role in guiding me away from such destructive paths. His dedication to avoiding all substances has inspired not only me, but also countless others in our circle. Danny's steadfastness in promoting a drug-free lifestyle has been a guiding light in my journey through the entertainment world and has helped me prioritize my well-being and focus on making responsible choices. His genuine concern for those around him and his commitment to leading by example makes him an outstanding role model and friend. And then the woman who played Kitty talked about Danny on the set of that 70s show, and she wrote... One of the first things Danny did with them was to sit them all down, he had a little meeting, and had them all make a pact that no one would do drugs because of the nature of our show. The spotlight would be on them, and he wanted everyone to succeed. I remember thinking it was such a smart thing to do, and something I never would have thought of. As a result, you never saw them in the tabloids. Danny made sure of that, and I was so appreciative. They all kept their word. And then one of Danny's brothers says, He was instrumental in steering my life as a teenager. One example of this was when it came to drugs. 
My brother has never done a drug in his life. When I reach the age that all teenagers do around 16, 17, my friends were experimenting with smoking weed or taking other drugs. Danny simply led by example and was able to concisely and easily explain to me the ramifications of taking drugs. I have still never smoked weed or done any other hard drug, and that is a direct result of my brother's guidance and wisdom. And this is just like a really, really weird thing to keep bringing up. The fact that Danny doesn't do drugs, which he does. <laughs> I mean, he very evidently has some issues with alcohol consumption, and that is a drug. And about as hard of a drug as marijuana, so it's just like almost embarrassing to read this shit. Because it sounds like a whole bunch of, like, 12-year-olds who are terrified of, like, even touching weed because they've been brainwashed by, like, the D.A.R.E. campaign or something. Like, it's just, it's so juvenile and strange. And, like, I'm not trying to encourage drug use, but, like, it's really not that big of a deal. Like, go smoke some weed or something. It's not gonna instantly end your career and put you on the cover of tabloids. You can do drugs in moderation. A lot of people do. It's pretty normal. And even if you did get, like, an addiction to them, that would be bad. But it would still be better than raping people. I mean... I just don't see how this keeps getting brought up in context of these allegations. Now, some people have suggested that the reason the drug thing keeps getting mentioned is that that's an effort to undermine the victims because they claim that they were drugged. Like, they're trying to push the implication that Danny couldn't have drugged those women. He hates drugs. And yeah, that, that very well might be why they keep saying that. I also think it could just be like a sort of weird Scientology talking point because Scientology is so staunchly anti-psychiatry and I know that that's a, a little bit different than recreational drugs like marijuana and alcohol, but it still seems to fit into the same vein of like foreign substance bad. And so I think it maybe does just speak to the people around Danny, even if they're not Scientologists themselves, which Ashton and Mila are not a part of the Church of Scientology, they might have still just gained some Scientology perspectives through their friendship with Danny. I don't know. I just don't quite understand why they keep bringing this up. So these letters obviously sparked a lot of outrage on social media to the point that Ashton and Mila put out an apology video. And I'm just gonna play like the entirety of it because it's only like a minute long. We are aware of the pain that has been caused by the character letters that we wrote on behalf of Danny Masterson. We support victims. We have done this historically through our work and will continue to do so in the future. A couple months ago, Danny's family reached out to us and they asked us to write character letters to represent the person that we knew for 25 years so that the judge could take that into full consideration relative to the sentencing. The letters were not written to question the legitimacy of the judicial system or the validity of the jury's ruling. They were intended for the judge to read um, and not to undermine the testimony of the victims or re-traumatize them in any way. We would never want to do that. 
and we're sorry if that has taken place. Our heart goes out to every single person who's ever been a victim of sexual assault, sexual abuse, or rape. So a couple things that I think are noteworthy here. Number one, it is very clearly scripted. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing for an apology video. I think it's totally fine if you need to write out what you want to say beforehand. That way you can make sure that you're just saying exactly what you want to say and not going too far off topic or not leaving something out. Like, I think that's fine. I think apology videos can be scripted. They don't need to be super candid. I don't have any issue with that. But it's scripted in a way where, like, it just doesn't feel very from the heart at all. It doesn't feel personal. It doesn't feel extensive in terms of their perspective on the matter. It's very brief. It just hits on a couple points. It feels very stilted. It feels like something that like a lawyer or a PR person just wrote for them. And that definitely doesn't help their case at all. And then I hate to get into like body language analysis, but why does Mila look so pissed off? I mean, just the way that the video starts with her being like, we support victims as we have historically. Like she says it in a way that just sounds very defensive. And I don't think she's earned a right to be defensive at all. Because you can say that you support victims, but you're actively not doing that right now. And then I love how Ashton says that the letters were intended for the judge to read. Like, yeah, no one was upset because they thought that you wanted the letters to be public. We knew what they were intended to do. That doesn't make it any better. In fact, it makes it worse because it feels kind of cowardice that you thought that you could just write these letters and that no one would ever find out about them and you could get away with all of it. So I don't know why that's a point you thought you needed to make. But the most kind of egregious thing about this apology is the fact that they don't really mention the victims directly at all. Even as they're apologizing, they say, we apologize to all victims of assault or whatever it is that they say. Like, all victims is so beside the point. Sure, in a macro sense, you are contributing to a kind of rape culture where people praise and support a perpetrator over their victims, and that is bad, and in that way, yeah, you are doing harm to all victims, but for the most part, your letters don't concern all victims broadly. They affect the victims of Danny Masterson, who you did not even mention. So these letters were incredibly insulting and disrespectful to Danny's victims, but I am glad that they became public because Ashton Kutcher's support of Danny Masterson, and also Mila's as well, by extension, has just kind of flown under the radar for years. Despite the fact that Ashton and Mila were going to weddings with Danny and taking pictures with him, despite the fact that Ashton did that god-awful GQ interview earlier this year, and despite the fact that the sitcom that Danny and Ashton were working on together took its sweet-ass time to finally fire Danny once the allegations came out. So evidence of the fact that Ashton was siding with Danny over these victims has been pretty public for a while, but it took these letters coming out for him to actually start getting shit for it. And now, not only is he getting shit for that, he's also started getting criticism for other things that he's been doing. 
Some of those things were things that I already talked about in my first video, like his sex trafficking advocacy, which has always been kind of bullshit. His whole Thorn organization has always just been, like, basically a tool for police surveillance that mostly just gets used against sex workers and not necessarily victims of trafficking. And even when it does identify instances of trafficking, that doesn't necessarily mean that any of those victims are actually being helped. But because he has this nonprofit that theoretically helps save victims of sex trafficking, he can use that for good publicity, and he does. You know, Ashton Kutcher's not just the dumb guy on that 70s show, he's saving children. It's the same kind of propaganda that, like, QAnon groups use. It's a grift, and it's a grift that he got away with for quite a long time until these letters came out and people started thinking, hey, Aren't you supposed to be someone that cares about victims of sexual assault? Leading people to start looking into what his organization actually does and what it's been claiming to do for years. So in my first video, I cited this uh, Reason.com article that says, Ashton Kutcher claims he helped cops save way more sex trafficking victims than authorities say they've found. And since the letters came out, I've seen more people posting that article on social media, so I think that's hilarious. And then in addition to that, there's been some old interview footage that started to go viral, so one clip I put in my video was Danny and Ashton on The Late Late Show together, where... They talk about Danny maybe having some compromising photos of Ashton. I have more photos of Commando Kutcher here, naked in a club, than probably anybody. No way. Are you serious? Oh, yeah. Only With my had, Polaroid. Like, after it closed. Well, you know. The full Kutcher. Yeah. No, you have zero pictures of the full Kutcher. Mm, okay. You don't well, have it's funny you should say that, but no. <laughs> But then in the last couple days, I've seen a whole bunch of other videos that I wasn't aware of at the time. So, like, there's one where he's talking about Hillary Duff, who was 15 at the time. Hillary Duff is in Lizzie McGuire. She also has an album out. Um, she's going to be in a movie called Cheaper by the Dozen. And she's one of the girls that we're all waiting for to turn 18, along with the Olsen twins. And then there's another one with Mila and Ashton on the Rosie O'Donnell show together. You know what's funny is when she was, she was 14 when we started the show, I was like 19, right? Right. And they're like, okay, you guys are going to be making out in this scene. And I'm like thinking like, wait, I this is like slightly illegal, right? I was going to say, that's right? probably your first kiss ever, right? It was my first kiss. Why some a bet you made with Danny about our first kiss? No, it wasn't the first kiss. <laughs> no, it was like a second ahead. or third kiss. It was the first, it was like the first week. No, it was not the first week. Whatever, let me tell you what All happened. Right, what no, let no, me no, tell no, you what No, no, okay, yeah. so I've never kissed yeah. a guy. So okay. I, was, I was so, I mean, you know, Ash was attractive, and yeah. I was a 14-year-old little girl, and I was extremely scared for my life. Sure. And I, he, he was very nice about it. He was like, oh, don't worry. So I was like, okay. Then Danny goes and goes, dude, I'll give you $10 if you French kiss her. What would you stick my stick your tongue in my mouth or some? What? No, 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 no. For ten dollars. You're making it sound like it was like really. Uh, it, okay, Dan, we had a little side bet yeah, going. Yeah. Like, Which was? It wasn't very As to whether or not, you know, like you know, you're kissing on the show, or boyfriend and girlfriend. Yeah. yeah. You would use tongue, right, Rosie? I, I mean, you would. You, it I depends mean, what kind of an actor you are. I absolutely, guess. Absolutely. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 
So Danny bets me like 20 bucks that I wouldn't do it. And of hey. course I'm like, yeah, sure, what's the deal? You and know? then the cops showed up and you got arrested <laughs> pretty much. They but should he have, he but they didn't. did it. And he I so did He I claimed so to this day he did that. I swear, I swear. Mila, never, I so did it. He never did it. I, I didn't so let did him. It. I think he tried, but uh, I think no, I kept my mouth so yeah, come on. Yeah. He, he did the old teeth block? Yes. Yeah, yeah, he didn't let him do the teeth block. You were like, oh, you Yes, he never got his You were good. And just admit it. She Dad, didn't come I back. Swear. She's 14. No. She did it. You stop it. She would know that was not the first. You had turned 15 by then. No, she was 12, oh, but yes, I know 15. it. There's a big difference. That one year makes the whole world change. And then there's some other clips of him and Mila from around that time when she was still a minor. Hi, my name is Mila Kunis, and I'm from that 70 show, and you're watching um, In the Crease TV. Hi, I'm Ashton Kutcher, and I'm from that 70 show TV. No, that 70 show yeah, too. Yeah. But and the reason I'm doing this is not because I think in the crease is good, but because Josh told me Mila would sit on my lap if I did. <laughs> 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 and it feels good. <laughs> and I, and then also just more clips of Mila Kunis talking about her time on that 70 show. I'm worried about you on the show because you keep. Boy, what? Because I'm the whore in the show. I think so. I know. It's, it's upsetting to my parents as well. I off camera, I know you're such a nice lady. Thank you. You're what? You're all of 19. Yes. Yeah. And 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 you're you're in the show though. You're you're just. Ben I'm the hot. one who's kissed every single guy in the show except for Topher. Except for Topher Grace. In, yeah. And in fact, I've kissed Laura's boyfriend, Chris who guest starred on our show, so I've kissed the Mastersons, I've kissed everybody. That's so wrong, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's quite wrong, yeah. And what do the writers, they just throw you, they don't care. No, they really just, I don't know what they're thinking. I have no choice but you know, to just kiss every man on the show. I would never... None of it excuses everything that Mila has done to this point, but clearly she has been mixed up with this group of people since she was 14 years old, so... She may have been exposed to some of the same horrendous behavior that many of the Jane Doe's were victims to. I don't really know exactly what she saw or what she experienced, but it doesn't seem like it was a great environment for a teenager to be in. And there might even be more to the story than we currently are aware of, because Chrissy Bixler, Jane Doe 3, posted on her Instagram story, Dear Mila, I pray you begin to process what you experienced as a child on that set. Your old interviews are very telling. I encourage everyone to watch them and decide for yourself what you hear and see. Do so before they get scrubbed from the internet. I also know what happened in Toronto and after. Question. If that's what you view as a normal relationship with a big brother figure, then I feel very sad for you. And I hope you consider getting into therapy. You all must forget, I was there the whole time those first five years of that 70s show. I remember everything. Yeah, so I don't know what went down in Toronto, but something. But Chrissy posted that after Ashton and Mila's letters became public, and she said something else in the same Instagram story about Ashton. She wrote, Dear Ashton, I know the secrets your role model keeps for you. Ones that would end you. Did you forget I was there? You were on speakerphone that night you called Danny on February 21st, 2001. I heard everything. I heard the plan. 
In my opinion, you're just as sick as your mentor. So this relates back to something else I talked about in my first video, that being the death of Ashley Ellerin. So Ashley Ellerin died February 21st, 2001. That same night, Ashton Kutcher had a date scheduled with her. He went to her house, he was a little bit late, he knocked on the door, no one answered, and then he said that he tried to open the door, it was locked, and since he figured that she was just mad at him for being late, he decided to just go on with his day, and he went to a party that he was supposed to take Ashley to. He said that the next day he found out that she was murdered, he went to the police and was like, hey, my fingerprints are on the door, but don't worry, I didn't kill her. And there's no evidence that he killed her, it was this, like, serial killer, I think he went by, like, the, the Hollywood Ripper or something. But years later, after the murderer killed another woman, and then I think attempted to kill another woman after that, he was finally caught, and then Ashton testified in that court case and talked about, like, I guess just going there that night when Ashley was killed. And over the years, there have been these headlines about how sad it is for Ashton that his girlfriend was murdered. They only reference Ashley Ellerin as Ashton's girlfriend, which is so fucked up because as far as I can tell, they only went on like one or two dates. Like they were very, very early on in their relationship. I don't even think they were exclusive yet. There's some indicators that she had been with a different guy earlier that night and like good for her. So I can't imagine that she would be too pleased by just being referred to as Ashton Kutcher's girlfriend all these years later when he didn't even show up on time to her house that night. What's more, though, is that he might have actually seen her dead body and didn't do anything about it. Now, I talked about that in my first video, and my primary source for that was the YouTuber Aaron Smith Levin, who has the YouTube channel Growing Up in Scientology. So Aaron made this claim that that night Ashton saw Ashley Ellerin's body when he actually did go into that house, and then he panicked, not because he was seeing a dead woman on the floor, whether or not he knew her and whether or not she was his girlfriend, that's still, like, a terrifying thing to see. So yeah, I would expect someone to freak out, but he wasn't freaked out about that. He was worried that it was going to affect his career if it came out that he happened upon a dead body or something. I guess maybe he was worried that he was going to be a suspect in the murder, but there wasn't any evidence that he killed her, so uh, I don't know why that would really affect his career, just because he he saw a dead body. If anything, just based on later events and the headlines that came out during the trial, he would have just gotten sympathy for it because like, oh, poor Ashton lost his girlfriend. But allegedly, while Ashton was freaking out, he called several people, including Danny Masterson and Danny and other people on his team and other like Scientologists all encouraged him to not say anything and to just go to the party that he was planning on going to and acting like nothing happened and Ashley never answered the door and so he just went home. In my video, I actually went through a floor plan from that murder scene and I personally looked at some of the crime photos, though I didn't show them on the video. But from my perspective, 
I don't really think it makes any sense that if Ashton's fingerprints were on the doorknob, that he didn't successfully open the door. The most logical route for the killer leaving the crime scene was the front door, so I don't really know why he would bother locking the door on his way out. It just kind of makes more sense to me that if Ashton tried to open the door, he probably succeeded, and if he opened the door, he probably saw Ashley's body. So just based on that, I thought there was merit to that story, but Aaron had been kind of vague about where he had gotten the information about that phone call that Ashton allegedly made to Danny Masterson. He has since come out and said that he did receive that information from Chrissy Bixler, and as we can see, Chrissy Bixler did write on her Instagram story that she was there that night, on speakerphone with Danny. So for me, that adds a lot of legitimacy to that claim because I don't know why Chrissy would come out and say that she heard that phone call if it actually never happened. So I already speculated at the time that Danny and the Church of Scientology might just have information about Ashton that he really, really doesn't want to get out. His actions that night with Ashley Ellerin's death was one of those things that I was speculating about, but it seems like there might also be some more stuff because Chrissy also posted on her Instagram, Y'all want to ask Ashton Kutcher if he remembers that orchestrated meeting between himself, January Jones, Laura Prepon, and me that took place in my, Danny Masterson's, living room in 1998? I know the secrets your role model keeps. Hashtag hidden cameras. Now, I've been trying to do a little bit of digging into any sort of, like, story or rumor or anything that might have come out about Ashton or Wilmer or Danny in the mid-2000s or early 2000s, because I saw some people on Twitter saying that they lived in L.A. around that time, and Danny and Ashton and Wilmer kind of, like, ran the club scene. And I even saw some people saying that it was, like, a known thing that if you're a young girl, you just kind of don't go around Danny Masterson. And so I was trying to see if there's any sort of, like, other claims that I could find around that sort of sentiment from that time. And I couldn't find a whole lot. I'm still looking, but... It's just really hard to find stuff from that long ago on the internet. But I did find this 2007 article from L.A. Curbed. I guess it's like a Los Angeles kind of real estate blog sort of thing that mostly deals with, like, houses in the Los Angeles area. And so this one is from 2007, and it says, A Look Inside Danny Masterson's Home. So the information comes from, allegedly, someone who was buying the house that Danny was selling at the time. I don't know if this is the same house that Chrissy lived with Danny in, but uh, it says it's his um, Beechwood Canyon home. And this is from just some random person that wrote into this website, so I can't really speak to its legitimacy, but... I also don't know why someone would make something like this up, but they revealed a few things, I guess, after they toured his house, saying, one, this guy loves his Scientology. Nearly every room had a plaque of affirmations, or whatever they call them, books on the subject, etc. Two, this guy loves himself. A good 25% of the pop art in the house are drawings and photos and sketches of himself. Oh, and all the mail comes to his inside joke names of D-Punch, 
Clever self-reference. So D-punch likely refers to donkey punch, which is what he used to go by as part of his like stage name as a DJ. And donkey punch is one of those things that like, it's a name that people give to sex acts that are really just like assault. I talked about it more in the first video, but it's a weird name to go by, especially if you're someone who actually is assaulting women. But anyway, then it says three, this guy loves his surveillance. Forget exterior cameras, par for the course in celeb-owned Hollywood Hills houses. There are 17 interior cameras planted club-style in those smoked glass orbs in every room. Danny can watch the comings and goings all over the house from the control grid in his master closet slash safe room. And then there's some other stuff just about like the design of the house, but that was the part that stood out to me. Why did he need 17 interior cameras? Does that relate back to this hashtag of hidden cameras from Chrissy Bixler? I don't know. I'm gonna assume that there is gonna be more to come in relation to Ashton Kutcher and what he knew at that time, and maybe even what he himself did. While I was looking around for anything else from around that time that might indicate some of the stuff that people are sort of hinting to on social media, I found this Rolling Stone article that's called A Closer Look at Ashton Kutcher, and it says his split from Britney, his wild night with the Bush twins, his bond with Puffy, and the punked party he calls a life. The Bush twins are the important part here. He's talking about the, um, the daughters of George W. Bush. So I guess at one point around like 2001, they were partying with Ashton, and in that time they would have been about 20 years old. He would have been probably like, I don't know, 25 or something. Maybe like 23, 24. So not that much older than them, but importantly, he was of a legal drinking age. They were not. And the article says, about a year and a half ago, Kutcher went to a Nike party with some of his friends. When his friend Matt spotted Jenna and Barbara Bush, Matt graphically described his amorous intent, oblivious to the glares of the Secret Service agents. I'd fucking nail the shit out of that bitch. My god, he was not shutting up, says Kutcher. Nevertheless, Ashton met the twins, who asked what he was doing after the party. Everyone ended up going back to Kutcher's house, although he insisted the Secret Service stay outside. So we're hanging out, Kutcher says. The bushes were underage drinking at my house. When I checked outside, one of the Secret Service guys asked me if they'd be spending the night. I said no. And then I go upstairs to see another friend, and I can smell the green waiting out under his door. I open the door, and there he is, smoking out the Bush twins on his hookah. The next morning, Kutcher picks up his phone and didn't get a dial tone. He assumes that ever since the Bush's visit, the Secret Service had had his phone tapped. Yeah, if I were you, Ashton, the Secret Service is not who I would be worried is tapping your phone. So I think that that's kind of weird to just talk about having the president's daughter's underage drinking at your house in a Rolling Stone interview, but there it is. There are some murmurings of Ashton having some other skeletons in his closet, but I don't have enough information about that to really say. There are also murmurings of Wilmer Valderrama, who played Fez in that 70s show, having some similar issues that he doesn't really want to get public. And again, 
don't have enough information, can't really say. But Wilmer does still appear to be friends with Danny just based off of Danny's own social media posts. Now, notably, he didn't write a letter for Danny's sentencing like Mila and Ashton did. That's either because he was just smart enough to know not to do that and that it was going to bring way more heat onto him. Or I also think it's possible that Danny's team didn't ask him to write a letter because at least Ashton and Mila have like mostly clean reputations. In theory, if you don't look too far into their past, they are the kind of people that you might want vouching for you. Wilmer Valderrama, on the other hand, has already been involved in quite a few controversies. There was that whole Howard Stern interview that he did a long time ago that was just really gross. And then he also has a history of dating women significantly younger than him. Demi Lovato even wrote a song about it because she was his girlfriend when she was like 17 and he was 29. So maybe Danny's team was like, not really the guy we want vouching for our boy at this moment. Someone who also didn't write a letter was Laura Prepon. So she has never really spoken about the allegations, but her hands are definitely not clean here. There are some allegations of her being a part of the initial effort to intimidate the victims when they first started coming forward or started reporting it to the Church of Scientology in the early 2000s. Laura was a part of the church for a long time. It was actually Danny and Danny's brother Chris that got her involved in Scientology. And while she left the church a few years ago, Prior to that, it did seem like she was pretty deep into it. She was even, like, covering the Scientology Celebrity magazine and talking about how far she was on the, what is it, the bridge to total freedom. So when she left, or when she publicly acknowledged that she left, she kind of made it seem like she was just exploring new religious teachings, but... I do find that kind of hard to believe with how deep into it she seemed to be. I think there's probably a more specific reason that she left, and maybe it has something to do with Danny Masterson, maybe it's something else completely, I don't know, but I would guess that she's not super in favor of the church at the moment. She hasn't said anything against them to the point that I think she could be labeled a suppressive person, but I would guess that she doesn't really want to actively support them with something like a letter in support of Danny. So I don't know. I wish that she would just speak out, but I understand that, like, Scientology can be a kind of scary organization, and she probably just doesn't want to go up against that in, like, a, a super blunt sort of way, but... I mean, girl, you were friends with someone that did something kind of evil. Maybe talk about it. But now the other cast member that didn't write a letter in support of Danny was Topher Grace. And I actually posted a tweet about this that got so much circulation it ended up in like a TMZ article, which I saw because I had just gone to TMZ.com for like a completely separate reason. I was looking for something else and then the first thing I saw was this article about Topher Grace being vindicated and there was my tweet just right there. And that's kind of funny because I talk a lot of shit about TMZ and something that I've talked about a lot, like on Twitter, on my podcast, in my videos, is the fact that TMZ 
has like some very specific perspectives that they will write from that's always in favor of someone or something that they have a like close connection to. So like with the Johnny Depp Amber Heard stuff, they were consistently posting stories in favor of Johnny because they have very close connections with his divorce attorney. And then like when the Free Britney movement was happening, they pretty clearly were just writing like pro-conservatorship propaganda because they probably had connections to someone in Britney's team. But that's just how TMZ works. It's how they have worked for years. So it was always a little bit odd that they weren't covering stories about Danny Masterson and this rape trial. They do occasionally, but just like the big stuff of like, oh, some allegations came out or, oh, the verdict came out. Or clearly, the whole thing about Topher Grace being vindicated. But TMZ clearly has connections with people in the Church of Scientology, so you don't often see negative articles about its members. And even when I went to TMZ the other night, when you type in Danny Masterson, you see a couple stories on the first page from this year. Again, it's just like the major stuff of like, Danny Masterson found guilty. Danny Masterson sentenced to 30 years to life. Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis address backlash, yada, yada, yada. But then prior to May of this year, when they just posted that Danny was found guilty, they didn't post anything about the trial while it was happening. The last story that they posted about Danny was from November of 2022, just announcing that there was a mistrial after a hung jury in the first trial. And then when you go to the second page, yet again, nothing about that trial. The last story is from 2021 when it just says, Danny Masterson claims Leah Remini threatened prosecutors and the LAPD. So like already kind of running defense for Danny here just in the title. And before that, it's Danny Masterson claims Leah Remini is meddling in the rape case, seeks more time for defense prep. And then we have a couple stories from 2020, one from 2019, then 2017 when he was actually fired from the ranch. But before that, the only thing we have about the rape allegations is Danny Masterson vigorously denies rape allegations, points finger at Leah Remini. So the only story that we have about the rape allegations is about Danny denying them and blaming Leah Remini. And then before that story, there's just one about his wife being rushed to the hospital for a kidney transplant, and that's in 2017. And then before that, the most recent story is from 2011. And just for comparison, if we type in Britney Spears, you can go back nine whole pages and still be seeing articles from 2023. And I know that Britney Spears is obviously a bigger celebrity than Danny Masterson, so it does make some sense that there would be so many more stories about her than about him, but the way that TMZ publishes their articles is they will take small parts of a story and stagger them out across multiple articles. So if they were covering the Danny Masterson case the same way that they cover literally any other celebrity scandal, then you would see a whole bunch of separate articles about the trial and the sentencing. There would be articles about all the different celebrities that wrote letters. There's just no reason for them to not cover other aspects of this story other than they don't want to. And why don't they want to? It's clearly something that people have interest in because I've seen it trending on social media on and off all week. But whatever. My tweet is in a TMZ article. 
I think that's fun. But my tweet says, For years, Topher Grace was depicted like he was a stuck-up asshole for not being besties with the rest of the That 70s Show cast. But guess who didn't write a letter in defense of a rapist this year? And then I used this picture that I found on Topher's Instagram just because I thought it was, like, funny. I didn't realize that the tweet was going to get as much circulation as it did, so it was kind of funny to me to see all the people replying or quote-tweeting the tweet being like, is this what Topher Grace looks like now? I didn't realize that so many people just haven't seen Topher Grace in a while and have no idea what he looks like anymore. And so while I did find the reaction to that tweet just kind of funny, after a minute I did start to find it a little frustrating because I've been talking about this trial and this case for a minute and in pretty great detail, and yet the biggest, like, thing that I ever said about it, the thing that got the most circulation, that got the most attention, is one tweet about Topher Grace. And then I saw one tweet that quote tweeted me and said, very interesting how easily y'all found a way to center a man in this case. And I really shouldn't have let that bother me because that tweet didn't even, like, have that many likes or anything, and I don't think the person that tweeted it had, like, a big following, so it was kind of like a nothing. It's just kind of annoying, because it's like, I've been talking about this for a minute, and even if they had clicked on my profile, they would have seen other tweets about the case that had absolutely nothing to do with Topher Grace. So to be accused of centering him in this conversation was just annoying. That being said, I would like to now dedicate a few moments to talking about Topher Grace. So some other stuff that I saw on social media was people just being kind of cynical about the more general praise that Topher was getting. There was a strong sentiment of like, why is Topher getting applauded for not writing a letter in defense of a rapist? And people saying like, the bar is in hell. And yes, indeed, the bar is in hell. And sure, he shouldn't really be getting all this praise just for not defending a rapist. But I can at least say about my tweet in particular, while I was kind of celebrating Topher and like, you know, putting up a, a photo of him like giving the middle finger and kind of being like, fuck you, because he's cooler than the rest of the cast for not doing that. The real point of my tweet was not oh, look at what a great guy Topher Grace is. I was more commenting on the narrative about Topher Grace and his relationship to the That 70s Show cast, which had been pretty prominent prior to this case and which I had been aware of for a long time. So when I was a kid or like a preteen or a teenager, I would pretty much exclusively watch the E! channel. And so I watched a lot of E! True Hollywood stories. And they did one about that 70s show where I remembered them really, really hammering in the fact that Topher Grace wasn't super close to the rest of the cast. Like, they made a really big deal about the fact that he only ever really talked to Laura Prepon, and then he didn't say goodbye to anyone on his last day when he left. And I remembered that because I always thought it was kind of weird how much of a big deal it was sort of painted to be in that special. And I actually went back and rewatched it a few days ago, and it does make up, like, a surprising amount of that special. To the point that it's literally a part of the teaser for the entire episode. 
In the next hour, we'll pull back the polyester curtain. What? To reveal what it was really like behind the scenes of this timeless sitcom. Topher just didn't click with the rest of the cast personally. Ashton and Danny and Wilmer loved to party, and that wasn't Topher's thing. A lot of the cast members were pretty bitter about the fact that Topher left because he's the central character, and where is the show going to go from there? Shut up, you meathead, you! This is the high-flying story of That 70s Show, the E! True Hollywood Story. And while we're talking about it, there's some other stuff in That True Hollywood Story that, eh, you know, hits a little different now. In the debut episode, Mila Kunis shared her first real-life kiss with Ashton Kutcher. Guess what? And here comes this beautiful guy, and I was like, supposed to make out with him. I was like, oh my god, I was so freaked out. But he could have not been nicer. She was actually 14 in the back of the Vista Cruiser with Kelso after a concert in the pilot. You know, knowing that now, it just looks unseemly that there's Ashton Kutcher with his hands all over this 14-year-old. I think it's like we're doing boogie nights. It's really weird. After breaking up with Mandy Moore. He hooked up with a younger woman, Lindsay Lohan, at the 2003 Teen Choice Awards. He must have a fetish for the teen queens because he dated Mandy Moore for two years, and then he dated Lindsay Lohan, and that's the top of the teen queen ladder. When they started dating, she was actually not even 18 years old, and they were keeping it really on the DL. And lo and behold, at her 18th birthday, who was there helping her blow out the candles? Wilmer. And they really dated heavily and were very public. Anyway, it always felt like there was something else not being talked about in explicit terms. Some reason that Topher and the rest of the cast didn't really get along. The implication in the special is that Topher Grace is just kind of an asshole. Or at least that he was like super serious and didn't really want to joke around and have like casual friendships with the rest of the cast. And so that was always the impression that I kind of got about Topher. But then a couple years ago, I started coming across Topher Grace in other, like, interviews and podcasts and stuff. I even listened to his podcast that he had for a bit, Minor Adventures with Topher Grace. And I thought that he came across as, like, a pretty likable dude, pretty down-to-earth, and... Yeah, that could just be some celebrity bullshit of him putting on, like, a facade for interviews where he knows that he's being recorded and filmed and whatnot. But then, the more I watched interviews of him with other people, the thing that I found really significant was that he seemed to be friends with those other people. Or at least, like, friendly. Like, when he went on Seth Meyers' show, they talked about Topher having some kind of, like, house party for the entire cast of SNL. On his own podcast, he had Joseph Gordon-Levitt and referred to him as, like, a friend, and the two of them met on the set of that 70s show. And then on Whitney Cummings' podcast, they talked for a while about their friendship, which it seems like started around the same time that he was on that 70s show. So I was like, Topher Grace was clearly not that socially isolated during that time. He was making friendships with other people. He just wasn't making friendships with the people on that 70s show, at least not the main cast. So if Topher wasn't hanging out with the rest of the cast, I don't really think that's because he was like a socially isolated asshole. I think that he just didn't get along with them. 
and why. And I'll also point out that when he was talking with Whitney Cummings, she made it pretty clear that she credits Topher with her not getting into, like, a weird drug scene early in her career in Hollywood, which, for all the time, that Danny's friends talk about him not being into drugs and keeping them away from the drug scene, it's like, you could have been hanging out with Topher the entire time. You didn't need Danny for that. Because you were, like, you were probably, like, one of the first famous people on a giant TV show that I met when I came in and was mm -hmm. actually friends, like became real friends with. And I, I saw like, oh, if you're famous, you like don't do drugs all the time. You hang out with friends that aren't necessary. You didn't hang out with only celebrities. You had real mm -hmm. friends from childhood. Right. You were on time at work. Like if I had literally linked up with any other famous person that, at that time, I would either be like dead or have like nine bastard children with Harvey you're Weinstein. Basically, you're basically like, oh, being famous is being a f***ing loser. Dork! Like, yes! yeah, that was, that and was like, me, you, yeah. You, but not, but. And st by the way, to this day. But also, there is a, <laughs> but but the fact that you have been so sustainable, uh, a, a, such a sustainable career and have such an amazing reputation, like if I had linked up with any other had at that time, I would have been like, oh, you do drugs and you, you know, I would have gone down the wrong path. I learned from you, like, be responsible, work, have good friendships, have a stable life. Winnie, this is Go like... to outdoor screenings at the cemetery. Like, we were, like, partying, but we weren't, like, going... Even people off camera rolling their eyes. And They're just like, like, nerd. Oh, does sound really nerdy, yeah. <laughs> You're saying you were in your 20s in Hollywood and you were doing all that? No, I'm telling you, you yeah. had, you were the star of one of the biggest shows on TV, could have been going to any club or festival or doing whatever and we were oh. doing healthy and being nerds and like making homemade ice cream and watching star wars so far from topher just being an asshole who never really wanted to make friends with his co-stars some other stuff has come out recently that might imply Topher wasn't the problem. So the journalist Yashar Ali, who's been covering the Danny Masterson case pretty much since the allegations broke, he was one of like the first people on this story. He tweeted the other day, Ashton and Danny always treated Topher badly. Topher has never liked Danny. I learned this while doing my early reporting on the then allegations, now conviction against Danny. Now, Chrissy Bixler posted a screenshot of that tweet and wrote on her Instagram story, Topher was bullied by Danny Masterson and isolated by most of the cast because Danny's like a cult leader. Danny hated Topher because Topher didn't bow to Danny like his other young castmates. I loved Topher. If I so much as said hi to Topher, I would be given a scolding and then ignored by Danny. It broke my heart. He was the only guy on that set with integrity and a moral compass. That's my experience. I was there. So obviously all the shit with Topher is like a much smaller part of this story, but I don't think that it's an insignificant one. I think all this kind of points to the amount of control that Danny exercised over that set, where him not liking Topher, allegedly, prompted Topher to not really be close with any of the other castmates. Not only that, once they started making, like, e-true Hollywood stories about the show, Topher is the one that's kind of painted as an asshole, like he was the problem. When it seems like he might have actually just been another victim, albeit a minor one, of Danny's cruelty. And clearly, Danny did have a lot of influence on that set because the woman who played Kitty even wrote in her letter, 
Danny was the leader of the kids on our show. He had the most acting experience and was a little bit older. He was very well-liked and very respected. Now, I would love it if Topher Grace spoke out. I think it would be nice if he said something in support of the Jane Doe's. But even just aside from all of that, I also think it would be good if he just spoke on his own experiences on that set just to kind of complete the picture of what Danny's control kind of looked like around that time and his influence over other people. Because the more I look into this, the more it seems like Danny Masterson himself was almost like a mini cult leader. At this point, Topher hasn't said anything, but his wife has kind of referenced the situation on her Instagram story. The day those letters came out, Ashley Hinshaw wrote... To every rape victim that is re-traumatized by witnessing society debate and focus their attention on what is going to happen to the rapist, I see you. And so that was a very nice thing for Ashley to say, though I have seen some people criticizing her for, I guess, supporting Johnny Depp previously in the Depp v. Heard trial. Now, I want to talk about this because I know that a majority of my audience is Team Amber because of all the coverage that I've done on that trial. And I guess that Ashley was one of the people that liked Johnny's Instagram post from right after the jury verdict. So that's getting brought up as her supporting him. I don't know if there's anything else that she did or said during that time, but that is taken as, like, an endorsement. And I see people bringing this up about other public figures, too, like, most recently with Sophie Turner getting her divorce from Joe Jonas. It kind of seemed like Joe was planting some stories in the media to make her look like a bad mom. And so, you know, that kind of read as, like, a smear campaign against Sophie. So for the people that support Amber Heard, that makes Sophie kind of easy to empathize with because a very similar thing happened to Amber when she first filed for divorce against Johnny. But Sophie was one of the people who did like Johnny's Instagram post last year. She has since unliked it, so I don't know where she currently stands on the matter, but at least for a point in time, it seemed like she was supporting Johnny Depp. So on my channel, I have had a lot of criticisms of, like, content creators and influencers who specifically supported, like, anti-Amber Heard propaganda, like misinformation that wasn't really true or very skewed and biased information. And the reason I'm so hard on those people is because they are aware that a lot of their audience sees them as like a source of information. And a lot of them, when they were covering the trial last year, just were not acting responsibly about how they communicated that information whatsoever. It was like really, really bad. But while I do think that content creators who spread misinformation about it last year do deserve to be criticized for that, I also think that we should be a little more lenient on the people that just fell for the misinformation. The information that the average person was exposed to in that case was extremely biased, even if they watched the entire trial just because of the articles that were actually approved to be used as evidence that was presented to the jury. That was all incredibly biased. Like, it, it was a very, very bad situation. And Johnny's team focused a lot on showmanship in that case, which is really compelling and convincing to a lot of people. The Depp v. Heard spectacle has a lot of similarities to other events. Like, 
I've brought up the O.J. Simpson trial. There's also a lot to be said about how the online discourse surrounding the case started to kind of resemble Gamergate. And there definitely are some similarities there with the trial of Danny Masterson. But as I have also emphasized in my content, the Depp v. Heard case was a completely unique phenomenon. So the way someone fell on the Depp v. Heard case isn't necessarily representative of how they feel about stories of domestic violence or sexual assault as a whole. As someone who does believe Amber, the fact that so many people who normally would come down on the right side of history for cases like this didn't believe her does make me incredibly, incredibly sad for Amber, but I would really encourage you to not just make enemy lists of anyone who has ever publicly supported Johnny Depp, number one, because thinking that everyone who was on Johnny's side last year doesn't actually care about victims of abuse is just like way too depressing. And then number two, the ethos that I think holds like every podcast episode and every video I've ever done together is that celebrity matters, like, a lot. In fact, I don't think that this story would have seen this spike in reporting and interest without Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis writing those letters. Even when Danny was found guilty, I didn't see as many people talking about it on social media as I currently do, because Danny Masterson just isn't as big of a celebrity as Ashton and Mila are. And how stories are presented to people and the medium of the media that's presented to people does matter quite a lot. R. Kelly's victims didn't see justice until a docu-series was made about them. Britney Spears wasn't freed from her conservatorship until after the New York Times and then a couple other outlets started making documentaries about that. And Johnny Depp had two trials looking at the allegations of abuse against him where he only won in the trial that was filmed. The trial where his celebrity and his on-screen charisma mattered a lot more. Scientology knows the power of celebrities. That's why they have a celebrity center and a celebrity magazine. It's why they recruit so many celebrities, and they work so hard to protect them from any sort of scandal. Celebrities can get away with a lot, but no celebrity can get away with absolutely everything. There are a lot of reasons why the jury mostly sided with Johnny last year. One of those reasons is that even though so much of the evidence in that case was in Amber's favor, a good amount of that evidence wasn't allowed in the Fairfax court, and then enough evidence was presented by Johnny and his team to obfuscate the truth of the situation. And that evidence complicated the story for people who weren't paying close enough attention to it. And most people weren't paying close enough attention because that's just not what people do. That's what media and journalists are for. They're supposed to be the ones doing the in-depth research that they then present to an audience. A lot of media figures last year were obviously not doing that research in regards to Depp v. Heard, and while they were slacking on their job, Johnny's team was leaking audio recordings of Amber admitting to hitting him, and they were getting stories published about Amber being arrested on assault allegations against a partner prior. And even though if you actually put those pieces of evidence into their full context, they don't really paint Amber Heard as an abuser, a vast majority of the people who were following the case on social media 
didn't have that full context. When I was doing my research for Depth v. Heard, I kind of thought of it as an iceberg. And so, like, the surface level stuff, the stuff that a majority of the audience of the case actually was exposed to, that was all stuff that was in Johnny Depp's favor. That was all stuff that made Amber Heard look bad and casted doubt on her allegations. The second that you go below the surface of the water, though, in the bigger part of the iceberg, the part that actually holds the whole thing up, that was all evidence in Amber's favor, but it was all evidence that most people didn't get to see. The Danny Masterson case is so different, though. It's not an iceberg. It's just like one big hunk of ice that someone might as well have just etched Danny Masterson is guilty on it. It doesn't matter if you're looking at the basic facts or the more like granular details. Danny Masterson is a rapist. It is so incredibly obvious no matter the amount of research that you do in this case. And the things that he was accused of was like so violent and evil and methodological that there's just no defending him whatsoever. Once information like that gets out, it doesn't matter that Danny Masterson is a celebrity. It matters maybe in a legal sense because he can afford better resources and kind of manipulate the courts in his favor, but other than that, as far as his career goes, he, he was never going to recover from this scandal because the allegations were too damning, and even if they weren't as bad as they are, who really cares about Danny Masterson? Like, the Johnny Depp class of celebrity is so rare, especially for actors. Ashton Kutcher is maybe closer to a Johnny Depp style of celebrity, but even he is pretty far off, and Danny Masterson is nowhere near Ashton Kutcher. So the fact that the Church of Scientology went to all this trouble to protect the guy who played Hyde in that 70s show and did some other stuff is, like, hilarious, but also horrifying. Because if this is the scale of cover-up that they're willing to do for Danny Masterson, think about what they're doing for Tom Cruise or John Travolta or even Ashton Kutcher, who is not technically a Scientologist, but clearly does revolve around Scientologists a lot. So the Johnny Depp trial and the Danny Masterson trial are very, very different, and those differences greatly affected their outcomes. But there is a little bit of crossover here, brought to you by Jessica Reed Krause, a.k.a. House Inhabit. So if you're someone who's been following me because of the Depp v. Heard thing, you're probably already familiar with Jessica. She was one of the first, like, really big, prominent Johnny Depp supporters online. She also wrote, like, a really shameful article about Britney Spears a few months ago, so Jessica is someone that I've been aware of for a bit, but... I didn't really know that much about her reporting on other cultural events until very recently, like her defense of uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, which is bizarre. And I don't know exactly how long she's been involving herself with the Masterson case, but she's involved now. So the first thing that I'm aware of her doing is posting these Instagram stories in praise of Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis for writing those letters for Danny. She said that a lot of celebrities silently support Danny but are terrified to go public about it. And then she also said 
any guy on set would have a crush on teenage Mila Kunis. That's disgusting. Now she's since voiced some disappointment in Ashton and Mila for their apology video. As has Taryn Manning, another friend of Danny's, who does not seem to be doing well at all. But it's just kind of funny to me because most reasonable people who were already upset at Ashton and Mila for writing the letters don't think that their apology video really cut it. But the fact that they even made that apology video has now got Danny's supporters mad at them too. Like you really couldn't have fucked up any worse. But then things started to get a little more intense. So Jessica has started specifically targeting Chrissy Bixler. She wrote on her substack, when Chrissy Bixler, the only victim in the Masterson case out of the three women to not secure a guilty verdict, learned about the letters, she responded with rage. So right there she tries to make it seem like Chrissy is just bitter or something because she didn't get a guilty verdict for her allegations against Danny, which, I mean, she has a right to be mad about that, for sure. And then also, this thing about she responded with rage, like, yeah... The letters were outrageous. That doesn't make her, like, petty because she's mad about it. But it says she responded with rage, first by implying that Kutcher played a hand in the brutal killing of his former girlfriend who was stabbed to death on February 21st, 2001. No, she didn't. Chrissy was not implying that Ashton Kutcher had a hand in murdering Ashley Ellerin. She was just making reference to the fact that Ashton tried to make it seem like he didn't see her dead body. I understand how if you just saw Chrissy's Instagram story, you could maybe take that as her implying that Ashton had something to do with the death. But if you followed that string any farther, it would have led you to the actual allegation that Chrissy is making, which is that he saw the dead body and he covered that up. But then Jessica wrote, then by sharing a series of old video footage of Kutcher talking about a bet he made with Masterson when Mila joined the cast of That 70s Show. The unearthed videos were presented as proof that Kutcher was some sort of sexual predator or pedophile for flirting with an actress four years younger than him, who is now his wife. And like, first of all, Trying to put your tongue in someone else's mouth without their consent, especially when you know that they are not going to consent to that because that's not really the arrangement here. It's just a professional kiss between two actors, which should not involve tongue. That's not really what I would call flirting. That's assault. And then to mention the four-year age gap, like they were just two adults who happened to be four years apart, when in fact, one of them was a 14-year-old and the other was like 19, so I think it was actually more like a five-year age gap, but I don't know. Either way, Ashton was an adult and Mila was not, so that's a pretty big detail to just leave out. And then the detail she keeps in about they're married now, like... Does that make it better? So then Chrissy posted on her Instagram a screenshot of Jessica's Instagram and said, This rape and cult apologist keeps attacking me with slander and lies. Should I just lie down and take it? Nah, this isn't me, not anymore. She then followed up by saying, Could everyone please report house and habit? 
She is now threatening me in my DMs, saying she's going to have Scientologists do tell-alls on me next week. Let them. But her constant harassing of me needs to be reported. I think I've been through enough. So Chrissy hasn't posted any sort of, like, screenshots of those DMs to my knowledge, so I can't really say whether or not that's true or what the DM specifically said. I have no reason to distrust Christy, but of course, Jessica Reed Krause's audience now does. So some of them I saw tweeting, We all know House and Habit wouldn't threaten this way. For me, this casts doubt about her credibility. If you can lie about this, you'll lie about anything. And to get people to mass report, why? If you're telling the truth, what Jessica says shouldn't bother you. And someone else wrote, We're all familiar with House and Habit, and we know Jessica isn't the type of journalist to resort to threats. I am now distrustful of Chrissy Bixler, a person who is blatantly lying to silence a journalist. How can her recollections be trusted? And this is why people like House and Habit are so dangerous, because while Danny Masterson doesn't really have stands, Jessica Krause kinda does. And a good selection of those stands are gonna just automatically distrust anyone who ever says anything negative about her. But, again, the Danny Masterson story is such a different story from Depp v. Heard. So even though there are some people who are just instinctively siding with Jessica on this, there are a lot of other people who are normally on Jessica's side who just can't get behind her on this one. Like, I am seeing people on social media saying that they're unfollowing her because of her commentary on this case. Even Andy Signore called her out. He tweeted, I like House and Habit. I love how she plays out unpopular opinions, but I don't get why she'd accept the Hollywood folks telling her Danny's such a good guy. And ignore what the industry knew of Ashton's drug and alcohol abuse that he tried to swear Danny cured him of. Supporting a friend is one thing, but those letters were truly idiotic and not honest. I do not believe folks are framing Danny to get to Scientology. Scientology is disgusting and covers this kind of stuff up all the time. And the same thing is kind of happening with Colonel Kurtz, too. She garnered a following for her support of Johnny Depp and Marilyn Manson, but recently she's been posting more stuff in support of Danny Masterson. And if you look at her comment section... A lot of her followers are not into it. With Jessica Krause, it appears that there maybe is a little bit more to this story as well, because Chrissy Bixler replied to someone in her comments saying, She also made a huge mistake. I just found out her motive for attacking me and her deep connection with some evil folks will be exposed soon. So, I'll just be waiting on that, I guess. And I know that I concluded my first video by saying that at some point in my lifetime, I do think that we are going to see the downfall of Scientology as an organization, and I thought that Danny Masterson might play a pretty significant role in that. But I might have even underestimated the impact of this case, because now not only do I feel pretty certain that Danny Masterson will have had a pretty big impact on the downfall of Scientology and whatever other fallout comes from that, considering the amount of like celebrities and other people in positions of power that 
people in the church definitely have dirt on. I also think this case could put a not insignificant dent in the army of support that people like Colonel Kurtz and House and Habit currently have. These are people who have garnered followings just putting out content that is specifically meant to disparage victims of sexual assault. And if their support of Danny Masterson can make even just a few people look at their output and the motives behind it a little bit differently, then I guess Danny really will have a pretty spectacular legacy, though not the one he intended to have. Because this is a lot of shit being stirred for, like, a C-list actor at best. So, for now, I guess that's it. Yeah, I'll hide in jail. <laughs> hey guys, do you think he's anyone's girlfriend yet? Kessel, he's been in jail for three hours. Of course he's someone's girlfriend. He has very pretty eyes. <laughs>